0: Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. You don't have to be a super forecaster to forecast what we're going to be talking about today. That's right, Dominic Cummings. We're going to pour over the nearly seven hours of questioning faced by the one-time chief advisor to the Prime Minister in an extraordinary appearance before a joint parliamentary select committee. It wasn't so much a machine gunning as a bombardment by shells, as Cummings went on the attack, and then some. We'll explore what he said about his targets, particularly the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, as well as his heroes. We'll look at what Cummings' account showed us about Boris Johnson's government and about government in general, and we'll take a look at what needs to happen next in a public inquiry into the government's handling of the pandemic and in wider reform of government. Well, I'm joined by a pair of IFG experts who sat through the entire Dom show and who both know a thing or two about what goes on in the heart of government. IFG senior fellow Jill Rutter, a veteran of number 10 in the Treasury, is with us. Hi, Jill. Hiya. Great to have you with us. Alex Thomas, who leads our civil service work and used to work in the cabinet office, is with us too. Hi, Alex.
1: Hi, Bronwyn. Good to be here great.
0: And I'm delighted as well to be joined in the studio today by someone who knows Dominic Cummings well, Sam Friedman, a former advisor at the Department for Education and ex-CEO of the Education Partnerships Group. Hi, Sam. How are you?
2: Um, Hi. Good. Thank you.
0: Great. Did you watch the whole thing?
2: Uh, I did. I I didn't quite make all seven hours, but I watched at least five, so I got the (laughs) gist.
0: Okay. On with the show. It was eagerly anticipated and was no anti-climax. Cummings himself provided the warm-up act with a seemingly never-ending tweet thread, and for someone who hasn't previously seemed to be a fan of parliamentary scrutiny, he was clearly hyper-prepared for what turned out to be a marathon session. More time with him than the committee had had with the Secretary of State for Health, as one committee member remarked. Alex, what stood out for you?
1: So I think there were, I mean, there's there's so much, it's almost uh, it's almost too much to, to, to get your arms around, but I think there were a number of things that stood out for me. I mean, obviously there were the heroes and the villains. Dominic Cummings had clearly decided beforehand uh, that he was going to uh, identify uh, some key villains being uh, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, the civil service, some senior civil servants, uh, including uh, Mark Sedwell, the former cabinet secretary, and also then then the heroes, the Rishi Sunak's and the and then the absence the Michael Gove uh, was uh, very little discussed. There was the the sort of personal politics of of that, and you can kind of re- read into that what you will. I think and, and the and, Prime Minister there among the villains and the Prime Minister. Sorry, yes, I, how could how could I uh, how could I miss <laughs> that one? Uh, yes, no, absolutely right. Uh, then there were the systems of government and the approach to, uh, to to government that I know we'll come on to talk about. But it was an incredibly sort of centrist, centralized view of government. This was about rooms in Downing. Street and decisions the Prime Minister was taking with a remarkably small number of uh, civil servant and special advisor aides. There wasn't a sense of Cabinet government. There wasn't a sense of these decisions being taken collectively. And I don't mean some sort of perfect view of the Cabinet uh, sitting in a room uh, debating these things. But but normally, Prime Ministers are quite keen to dip their colleagues' hands into into these sorts of decisions. And if Cummings is to be believed on this, it didn't seem like that at all. There
0: was very, very little mention of the NHS, in fact, was that? Yeah.
1: Uh, very and very focused on these rooms in Downing Street, whiteboards in Downing Street, and not a sense of the huge, great kind of architecture of government, the National Health Service, local government. And I think that, you know, that rings true through what we uh, saw uh, over the course of last year and how the decisions were made. Uh, I also think I'll stop there on the uh, immediate re- reflections, but I do think the committee did a pretty good job. I think there's some criticism of MPs uh, as to trying to be more interrogatory or pin Cummings down on some of his claims. But I think within the constraints of these things, uh, Jeremy Hunt, Greg Clark were impressive in corralling the the questions. They tried to pin their witness down uh, as much as they could and actually kept things pretty pretty disciplined. Obviously, it helped that they had a willing witness who wanted to, uh, to, to spill the beans. But I thought it was actually a good day for parliamentary uh, scrutiny yesterday.
0: There's a really important points you make. And I want to come back to that one about the feel of it, the intensity at the heart of government. But Sam, what do you think he was trying to do?
2: Well, it felt like a very typical Dominic performance to 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 me, having sort of observed him over the years. Sort of a strange mixture of very astute analysis of the problems in government that uh, led to to so many issues with the pandemic, and and of the prime minister's sort of personal style, mixed with sort of personal vendettas and a sort of dose of self-aggrandizement. It sort of all felt quite familiar in terms of his tactics. But I I worry a bit that in the political theatre. And the, uh, the drama of it all, we miss uh, the sort of purpose of the inquiry, which is the lessons learned. And, and actually, he did say quite a lot of interesting stuff around some sort of key points, particularly in that sort of February March period when we did get it very wrong for a period of weeks. And I hope, and I know in this in this uh, uh, conversation, we'll have a chance to dig into into those sort of failures of government a bit more.
0: Apart from anything else, he was trying to say that the prime minister was unfit for office. Yet this is someone who is almost um, indivisible from Boris Johnson's electoral success and success in getting Brexit done. Did that feel like a, a contradiction or a surprise to you?
2: Not at all. I mean, I've never thought he would have had any intellectual respect for Boris Johnson. I think, you know, he's always seen Boris as a vehicle firstly to get Brexit done and then to get into Downing Street so that he could pursue some of his own interests. Um, he's never seen himself as in the traditional advisor role and that became very clear during the testimony when he, essentially he said he left because Boris wouldn't do what he wanted anymore. So the fact that he, he now feels he's unfit for office, I suspect he's always felt that he was unfit for office, just slightly less unfit than Jeremy Corbyn, but also that he could be a vehicle for, for Dominic and the only available vehicle around at the time. So I suspect a lot of what he saw during the pandemic just confirmed his existing uh, low opinion of Boris Johnson, but it got to the point where that decision making became so poor in the autumn that it was costing a serious number of lives.
0: Jill, what do you make of this of this charge against the, the Prime Minister uh, of being unfit for office, running a chaotic government, that word that came back again and again? How much do you think this is to do with Johnson uh, and is real? And how much is it Dominic Cummings' frustration at government?
3: I think it's a, it's quite a potent mix of the two. I think a lot of people have uh, for some time identified potential shortcomings of the Prime Minister, challenges he would face In running Downing Street, we have to remember that the Prime Minister had done very little time as a minister. He'd been Foreign Secretary, a rather undistinguished period as Foreign Secretary. It's a very different job to the challenge of running Downing Street. you can argue that no ministerial job really prepares you adequately for Downing Street, but I think Foreign Secretary really is quite away from the limelight, particularly when, as Boris Johnson was under Theresa May, you're kept out of most of the serious policy discussions because Prime Minister doesn't want you there.
0: And you're perhaps being a bit a bit kind there. I mean, it was distinguished in the sense of the number of controversies and uh, upsets that he caused as Foreign Secretary.
3: It was marked for for that the sort of you know big legacy. I think apart from possibly. The successful reaction to the scruple poisonings. The big thing you remember from um, Boris Johnson's tenure as Foreign Secretary was the shambolic hearing over Nazarene Zaghari Radcliffe and the terrible consequences for her of his being too casual with his briefing on that occasion. So it was a very undistinguished tenure. Relatively new team in Downing Street. I mean, absolutely clear they hadn't worked out how they wanted Downing Street to work. A lot of us had said that, uh, questioned whether they'd really made the transition from being a very effective campaign team in Vote Leave into the different challenges of governing. And I think the fact that, as Alex noted, their view was basically it was all about Downing Street and leavers from Downing Street rather than sharing any sort of understanding. Of the scale and dimensions of government. Clearly, didn't think they were particularly helped in that by the officials in the Cabinet Office, but I think that is another big question mark over the Downing Street operation. And I think at one point Dominic Cummings basically said, you know, partly that they were all very tired, but also that they'd had a very odd run in into government. So even though they'd been around for six months, just had a reshuffle. You could argue that was a bit of an unnecessary reshuffle in February 2020, before, just before they were hit by the pandemic. So, you know, some people were very, very new in post. But they'd had that odd period of domination by Brexit, then the election. So, they hadn't really even had a normal six months to get their feet under the table. Plus, of course, you know, one of the things that was absolutely notable by its absence yesterday was any hint that there were any ministers playing a part in this, apart from villain Supreme Matt Hancock and the Prime Minister. Uh, The rest of the Cabinet, absolutely notable for its absence, and Cummings repeatedly made it absolutely clear that absolutely no serious business was done either in Cabinet or, he appeared to suggest, in Cabinet committees. So it's very much a position where everything depended on the Prime Minister. I thought what slightly undermined Cummings' evidence, though, was his perception. The big thing that went wrong with Boris Johnson was that he thought he was Prime Minister and wasn't prepared to give Cummings carte blanche to effectively not just be advisor to the Prime Minister, all that sort of argument about what his title really was, but actually to be de facto Prime Minister. There was that bizarre moment when it sounded like his staff effectively were trying to mount a coup in Downing Street to take over the reins of government from somebody who they regarded as a wholly inadequate prime minister and were deeply frustrated that their coup failed.
0: And the point you could make to him is that um, Boris Johnson is prime minister and you a point you've made, Jill, in, uh, in writing many times is, is that an advisor is, at the end of the day, just an advisor.
3: That is right, but I'm not sure that was quite what Dominic Cummings thought the deal was uh, in this Downing Street
0: Thanks for that. And you've made some really important points there, including just reminding everyone about how new this government was, and then it was just getting itself organized, as any government will, but very much in the, with this character of the Johnson government. Alex, what about the um, attack, uh, there's no other word, or, or on Matt Hancock? What should we make of it?
1: Well, I think Cummings really interesting Sam's take on this, but clearly sees the world through heroes and villains. And it wasn't just Matt Hancock; it wasn't just the politicians or the civil service or the very senior civil servants. He would he identified brilliant civil servants, you know, lions led by uh, donkeys, and then terrible civil servants. So I sort of put the Matt Hancock attack in that context he's uh, Cummings is is casting him as the as the villain and so is throwing uh, as much as he uh, can at him I mean it's interesting that Matt Hancock's subsequent appearance in the House of Commons has show of support from conservative MPs Jeremy hunt stood up and uh, emphasized that these were allegations that were being made uh, against him and should be considered not proven so I think uh, for, for me it may be because I've sort of got a bit cynical about this, but Dominic Cummings almost undermined the attack by being so vituperative about it, talking about calling for him to resign every day or every week, 10 to 15 occasions when he had lied. Now, I think that there was, there was uh, one thing in there that I think really could stick if Cummings was able to prove it around social care and some of the messages that were given out around uh, the decisions about discharging patients from the NHS into social care without testing. And there's a, a forensic examination of that is needed. I mean, we've got a fair idea of what 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 happened, but I think if Hancock was caught out on saying something that wasn't correct on on that particular decision, that uh, is is such a sort of moment in the in the early days of the crisis that could stick. The rest of it, I mean, in a way, it's almost secured Matt Hancock's position because he, uh, Boris Johnson can't sack him at the moment.
0: Yes, and we were thinking re- reshuffle might be coming, but now um, you know, if Dominic Cummings is there saying Matt Hancock must go, it must improve his chances of of staying. Sam. What do you make? And I think Alex is absolutely right to put his finger on this this charge about social care that, that Matt Hancock had said that people being released from hospitals into care homes would be tested and then they weren't. Is it just, uh, he said, he said, Labour has, uh, has honed in on that. Where do you think this is going to go?
2: I mean, I think that Cummings was right that there were a couple of major issues where not just Hancock, but other cabinet ministers as well, the whole government, were pushing a line that we could see at the time wasn't true, and certainly in hindsight, we you can confirm wasn't true. One of those is social care. It's very clear, talking to anyone working in the social care sector, that there was not a protective ring uh, around that sector, and uh, there was a major failing there that was not acknowledged at the time and still hasn't been acknowledged. And also that um, another sort of allegation that, that Cummings made that the the data fully supports is that the NHS wasn't prepared, wasn't in a position to. To provide support for everyone who was dying, um, the government have always said the NHS didn't collapse; that there was never any triage, and um, that they were able to give sort of full care to everybody. You can just see from the data comparing uh, what happened in the UK to, to Germany or France that that wasn't true. We were not able to provide as many uh, intensive care beds for the number of people in hospital as in other countries. So I think there are a lot of very serious. Uh, allegations that need you know need the proper public inquiry but would justify Cummings allegations that Hancock and others were not telling the truth in the early days, whether intentionally or because they were themselves being misled um, but I just took to pick up on the point around uh, the sort of machine gunning of Han- Hancock in particular it did it did no, really stand out and I, and I agree with Alex it sort of undermined the testimony in a way that that he was so vicious on one person and then the prime minister but sort of everyone else was outstanding. Yeah, you know, particularly the sort of effusive praise of Sunak, who you know we know was against the second lockdown in in the autumn, for instance, which Cummings rightly said was was a was a stupid position to take. So this sort of weird binary where Hancock and the Prime Minister were idiots, and Rob and Sunak and were were sort of outstanding ministers just doesn't make any sense. They were in senior positions in government; they had the opportunity to to sort of push the the right arguments. Um, themselves and they they also were supporting the sort of things that Hancock was saying in, in public. It's noticeable that Hancock is the only senior remainer that's still left in the higher echelons of government. Cummings and Hancock did work together briefly when Hancock was a DFE minister at the end of twenty thirteen, and Cummings thought he was a joke then. So you know there's always been animus between them. And that we also know that Cummings basically got Rishi Sunak his job and has been a sort of supporter of him. So there was a lot of kind of politics going on in the background between who he was prepared to castigate and who he was supporting.
0: Jill, if you just pick up the question of Michael Gove, barely mentioned in this, even though he was running the coronavirus operations um, uh, committee from the summer, Rishi Sunak, really quite controversial for the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, but again, praised through all this. What are the questions that should be asked about them?
3: I do think there's some very interesting questions. I mean, Michael Gove was supposed to be chairing the COVID operations subcommittee, So he should have been probing some of these issues about actually what was being delivered, where was the capability to deliver. We assumed that Michael Gove actually had rather a big say on procurement decisions, which uh, Dominic Cummings said, no, no, he had no role at all. That was actually when he was specifically asked by somebody after what seemed like sort of five and a half hours, aren't you ever going to mention Michael Gove? Didn't he have some role in procurement? And basically Michael Gove was just completely airbrushed out of the picture. So you would have thought actually that in that cabinet office role of stress testing plans and checking that things were actually on track, that Michael Gove, I think, played a much bigger role of that. Of course he was, you know, also doing his Brexit preparations, but this was a big item on the Michael Gove agenda. And I don't know whether this was Cummings putting up a human shield around uh, his longtime patron or quite what. I'm Rishi Sunak. I don't know whether the Treasury will be pleased at being so irrelevant to all these discussions. I mean, uh, Eat Out to Help Out justification was, well, he was just following orders, basically. It was the Prime Minister's strategy. Certainly at the time, the Treasury were incredibly proud of Eat Out to Help Out as a sort of brilliant scheme, um, which uh, other countries they thought were quite keen to copy. I mean, they could argue that if the Prime Minister had taken a decision to reopen the economy, our task now is to turbocharge it. But I think the really interesting thing that came out for me in all of this, I mean, the social care thing, I think, goes a bit deeper than just Matt Hancock, because as Jess Sargent, our Devo expert, was pointing out this morning, there was a very similar problem in Scotland on social care discharges. And that was well away from Matt Hancock, because as we know, the NHS is an English NHS, and the Scots are in charge of that. so. It's not just about Matt Hancock. I think there are interesting questions about the communications between health and the health service. What messages were they getting back? But over all of this, the other impression you get is people who are sort of living slightly insulated from the entire rest of the commentary going around. Because there are lots of MPs raising concerns about what was going on in care homes, lots of broadcasters talking to people who run care homes about some of their immediate concerns. In late February, early March, most people's TV screens were full of pictures from Italy that released provoking questions about the government strategy. And yet the sort of number 10 team seemed to have almost been living in their own sort of hermetically sealed bunker, where they weren't picking up on any of these external signals. Maybe they were so introverted trying to manage the shopping trolley on a daily basis that they couldn't focus on that. But there does seem to be an amazing lack of curiosity about, you know, are we really getting this right? And almost a sort of defensiveness that you uh, don't ask, don't tell. If I don't ask, are we testing everybody being discharged, then I won't know. And I can go ahead asserting that they are. And I think that's really worrying.
0: That's really, really interesting. Well, let's let's take this forward from the specifics of the Johnson government, which we've been talking about to government in general. Cummings, it's very much part of his charge. He comes in and he says that we turned up in government and found all this stuff doesn't work. And if you put Bill Gates in, you know, or someone, they would be really frustrated, someone coming from the commercial world, uh, really frustrated at how stuff doesn't work in government. And this is very familiar to us at the IFG because we're set up to argue for change in things that could work better in government. Alex, what's he right on?
1: He's broadly right on the diagnosis, I think. Uh, and this is this is not a new subject for us or anybody. As you say, we've um, talked about this a lot over the last year and more. So he's right about some of the confused accountabilities in government. I thought the the, the structural charge that he made that that stuck most was the uh, confused and mixed accountabilities between ministers and between civil servants. Some of the tensions that are not easy to resolve but need to be resolved about um, an hiring example? and hiring and firing. So I mean, he talked about hiring people. So if you're if you're if you're a minister and you're accountable for responding to a pandemic, and yet uh, you can't uh, choose your own people, and there's a civil service process, I kind of I recognise. The, the tension uh, there. And so Cummings is right to highlight that, for example, as a problem. He's also right to say that the civil service is not open enough to uh, new applicants from different fields, for for example. But where I think he's wrong or not, you know, doesn't have a kind of complete view of it, is in his solutions, both in the simplistic nature of some of the solutions, or, you know, just, just open the thing up, just allow ministers to hire their own people. There are uh, you know, other consequences to, to that that play through. But also, and I think even more importantly, the, the how that you make these changes happen. One of the reasons why Cummings' time in Downing Street, I think, will be seen to be a failure on civil service reform is because he didn't bring people with him. He saw it as a revolutionary approach and alienated the system that actually, in part, was probably quite keen, or some parts of it were probably quite keen to work with him.
0: It, it's something that had to be done to the civil service very, very quickly. Let me bring Sam in. On all this because um Sam, one of the the things that dominic cummins is saying is that there was no planning all the planning was there was useless uh, and he's talking about testing and isolation and shutting the borders and and things like that in the beginning uh, he doesn't particularly go for the the department for education but we're, we're doing some work on that at the institute and, and you used to work there and i was very struck by the sense that there doesn't seem to have been any thought for actually having to close schools and what that might mean for exams and so on what, what's your sense of the kind of planning that goes on
2: I mean, certainly when you look at the DfE, there was no planning at all. They didn't have any plan for, for, for sort of a crisis situation where exams uh, would have to be cancelled. Uh, they didn't have a plan for, for remote learning. They didn't get one in place for, for months. You know, that first period of school closure there was very little guidance for schools uh, there was sort of chaos around the examinations it was an extremely difficult time for schools to some degree and you can make this argument for the whole of government you, you'd give them some leeway because you know who, who of any of us would have would have sort of w- was correctly predicting there'd be a massive pandemic and would have been in a position to sort of get everything right in the early days what really Struck me um, about the, the DFE's performance was that, and the whole government's to a degree, is that the second time round they still weren't prepared. Um, so uh, there were lo- I mean, lots like of this us- year, this year. <laughs> yeah, well, lots of us in the sector, as we were coming into the autumn, were sort of screaming that there's no plan for the exams next year. You still haven't got laptops out for everybody. There's still not a proper plan for for remote learning in schools. And they were sort of saying, "Oh, we 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 we've made a decision. We're not going to close schools again." And we were saying, "But." you might have to change that decision. It's fine for that to be your plan A. None of us want schools to be closed. But you should have a plan B, and you should have a plan for that. You should be talking to schools about alternatives for exams and putting in place systems that would allow us to do assessment if exams can't happen, but they just sort of didn't do any of that. And we're now in a position where we're heading again into a summer of just absolute chaos for teachers and young people.
0: As we're recording this, my daughter has just slammed the front door and gone out to one of her so-called A-levels. <laughs> uh, goodness knows what comes out of that whole thing. I, I, I think you've absolutely caught something there about the lack of planning even when the coronavirus emergency descended. Jill, do you think that government is just much more difficult than Dominic Cummings expected?
3: I think government is much more, much more difficult. And I think it's particularly difficult. I mean, I think one of the questions is, where do we create the space for this sort of contingency planning? I thought one of the really interesting things, which was good yesterday... Was the focus on the sort of, you know, lost six weeks maybe of January, February? I mean, there was at least the possibility we might be hit by something really bad then, even if you uh, did think we'd be able to contain an outbreak or you thought the peak was going to be much later and you had managed in a different way. But where was the sort of impetus at that stage? coming? said he didn't bother with COBRA because it was just boring, a bunch of PowerPoints, pretty useless. But he could have gone to COBRA and he could have said there, are we actually doing any thinking the unthinkable about what if we had to fill in X or Y? I think there's a really interesting question about whether we should be formally tasking permanent secretaries with contingency planning, irrespective of whether their current bunch of ministers want it or not, because we've seen that before. We saw that over Brexit with no contingency planning for a leave vote because Minister didn't want that. I mean, nobody really wants people to be thinking about disasters, but I think we probably should be saying that that's part of the permit secretary accountability to make sure departments have thought through all these um, all these things and set aside some time every year to stress testing their pandemic plans. So I think there's some interesting things out. I think, as Sam said, being caught out second and third time around is much less defensible than being caught out the first time around. The first time around, I think people would cut some slack. Second and third time, I think deservedly, you shouldn't be cut so much slack because you ought to have been much readier. And actually, I think what's interesting is just in the past week, we've seen these chaotic communications, both on travel, which you discussed in the podcast last week, but also this week on the advice to the hotspot variant. Places, which just suggests that actually, has the government actually improved things on anything other than the vaccine rollout? We still look as though we're making some sort of quite basic errors on anything that is not just getting loads of vaccines out where we're undoubtedly doing really quite well. And I think that's quite worrying, the lack of that. But I think the other thing, very easy for Cummings to say, this is all about the civil service. But for me, the really top line message yesterday was however reformed and wonderful your civil service is, it's not going to be able to function without some decent political leadership. You
0: were talking about the shopping trolley, and Dominic Cummings said that Johnson changes his mind 10 times a day and then calls up the media and contradicts his own policy day after day after day. Can any system of government handle that kind of leadership?
3: No. I mean, when you're having to spend your time and attention in number 10 trying to manage the prime minister away or out of issues, uh, then it's really difficult. I mean, that that comment that Dominic Cummings made, we've all been debating why did the prime minister not signal the importance of the pandemic planning by at least attending one of those five COBRA meetings that he missed in February. You know, his first one was, I think, on the 5th of March. Now, Cummings gives a different version of this, which was the prime minister would have actually been a menace at the COBRA meeting because he would have actually not given urgency to pandemic planning. He would have downplayed it. I mean, it was the moment that Johnson's reputation veered towards the Trump approach to pandemic management.
0: Yeah. On the, on the other hand, that you, that you could see, going back to our earlier theme, that this is a failure of the advisor because he's trying to deny that the Prime Minister is Prime Minister and swiping, as you said, at, uh, um, at both the Prime Minister and the whole civil service apparatus. Alex, uh, the Cabinet Office, your old place of work, came in for a particular
1: battering, <laughs>
0: horrifyingly shit, apparently.
1: Is that right? Well, I, I don't know if I'd describe it quite that way, but um, it's, definitely got, it's definitely got problems. And I think it definitely has some very serious questions to answer about how it performed in the early phase of the crisis, particularly how it performed as an information, data and uh, policy advice accumulator in order to give the Prime Minister the best possible uh, ad- advice. But just, I mean, picking up on what Jill said there, and it does go to the Cabinet Office point as well, I think, which is that Cummings, in his testimony, seemed to have a sort of remarkable faith in Systems and structures and processes to overcome deficiencies in a prime minister or in political leadership. Now, I I think some of this was obviously self-serving because he was playing down his own influence and wanted to suggest that his his advice was not being taken, and therefore he was 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 blameless. For such an iconoclast, there was a surprising reverence for the cabinet secretary and the the structures in in, inside the centre of government. He was asked at one point who the most important uh, person in uh, Downing Street was, and he said. Cabinet Secretary and the Prime Minister's Civil Service Principal Private Secretary. So, I think actually there's a misplaced faith in just how good the, any institution uh, or system can be in managing some of these things.
0: That is a really, really interesting point, Sam. You've, I mean, you know Dominic Cummings. What do you make of what Alex has just said?
2: I mean, I, I think yeah, going back to, to sort of the beginning of, of, of this conversation, what, one of his objectives would have, uh, in, in giving this evidence would have been to sort of reinforce points he's been making for, for decades about the incompetence of Whitehall and the fact that you need fundamental structural change in the system. He doesn't think in a systematic way. He does tend to think in terms of individuals. It sounds like he ha- he quite liked the cabinet secretary, so the cabinet secretary was a sort of a goodie in all of this. Um, and then and Matt Hancock was a baddie. Like he doesn't. The cabinet secretary he picked Sam, and the chancellor he picked. Um, they they were the sort of goodies. It's sort of a w- weird way to think about government when his his analysis and his diagnosis which as Alex said is, is, is correct in many ways is actually about system failure uh, not about the individuals you you put into place and I think it's quite typical of him that his sort of analysis is systematic and, and, and accurate. but then his when he actually gets into the detail he can't Bring himself away from the individual relationships and the personal vendettas and, and goodies and baddies. So I did think he, that was quite typical. I mean, although I, you know, going back to the sort of point about, you know, none of this works without leadership, I did have quite a lot of sympathy with that comment on not having the prime minister in Cobra. Having sat in meetings with <laughs> Boris Johnson, it's like having a, it's like trying to be in a meeting with a toddler. Like he just, all he does is try, is make stupid jokes and try and get attention for himself. So I, I genuinely think it would have been. Uh, less useful, those meetings, had you been involved in them. So I did have sympathy for that point.
0: Thanks for that uh, ring of authenticity. There. Let's use that, uh, and carry that image in, in our mind, to talk about reform. Alex, what do you think about what
1: he's recommending? As I said earlier, I think there's I think there's a lot, lot lot of good stuff in the analysis, but I think government is about systems, but it is also about collections of people, and you need to bring collections of people along with you. So as we've argued i think I think he's right about civil service skills, for example. Um, civil service does need to both use the uh, data analytical uh, scientific skills it it already has more effectively and to recruit more of them. I think he's right about opening up the civil service and kind of breaking down the uh, courtier uh, approach that that uh, still persists in, in in some places at the um, uh, top of the civil service and in the the policy sections um, of the civil service. You know, I could I think he's right about accountability and I think some of the confusions about uh, about accountability and, and sorting those out. But this is a decade long project. This is a, a, well, it's a never ending project actually. It's about a thousand specific decisions that you take month after month in the civil service uh, and in government as a whole it's not about firing off you know uh, testimony to a committee or blogs but i think there's a there's, there's a whole uh, range of reforms that will improve the civil service and improve government for its own sake but they can't make up ultimately for deficiencies in leadership uh, and they can't stop government being really complicated and messy and, and about creating in the end in the end a lot of government is about creating the right conditions for people to broadly do the right thing i think there's a complexity to it, I'd say.
0: All right. Well, the Prime Minister is still there, but this government has got rid of quite a lot of permanent secretaries. I mean, Jill, do you think that's um, a necessary step for any government to do, or is it really by uh, beside the point? And uh, these really should be system changes that we're looking for.
3: Well, whatever they are, the absent, the loss of those permanent secretaries last year isn't a system change, because although we've lost uh, quite a lot of people, we've replaced them with people who look incredibly similar in terms of background, experience, etc., My real worry about the sort of Cummings atmosphere, and he wasn't called out at all yesterday. Um, there was some suggestion, did you do anonymous briefings? No, I don't do that. Maybe I had the odd chat to Laura Kunzberg to put her right on the odd thing because BBC matters so much. But there were a lot of anonymous briefings coming out last year about civil servants And my worry about that is actually that one of the things that that sort of um, atmosphere creates where people are looking around for, are they being briefed against, are they about to be thrown into the bin, is it creates an environment that actually is absolutely inimical to what Cummings wants, which is an environment where civil servants are prepared to challenge ministers. We don't know what went on in the Department for Education, maybe Sam does, about the lack of a plan for schools, about the lack of a plan for exams. But we do know that the two people who effectively had their careers terminated through this were Sally Collier at Ofqual and Jonathan Slater, the Permanent Secretary, and that the Education Secretary appeared to emerge, not with his reputation undamaged, but uh, certainly nobody, uh, the Prime Minister, not asking for his resignation over it. And I think there's a real question about, you know, does this give license for civil servants to have the robust conversations they should be having with ministers? It also goes, I mean, Dominic Cummings, we know, is not a fan of process at all. But sometimes you do need processes to maintain, you know, rules, credibility, spend taxpayers' money wisely, etc. One of the things that I'm really worried about is that the sort of Cummings like general plague on the civil service makes people much less willing to challenge ministers over propriety, particularly when you have a prime minister who basically seems to think that rules are for mugs and certainly not really for him. And I think that all is, actually ends up with quite bad government because what you do want is, you know, you want smart rules. You don't want rules that get in the way of the outcomes, Um, things but they are there for a purpose you want people who are prepared to uphold them you want a challenging collaborative environment I don't think that Dominic Cummings general atmosphere of the civil service is conducive to that though I have to say at some points yesterday I did think this guy would be quite fun to work for but anyway work with
0: and many people say Sam your view is he he fun to work for but also what do you think uh, he's right about and what would you change
2: well, he he is actually he was he was he was a real mix. Some days he was great fun to work with. He's very charismatic, smart. You know, has yeah, can be sort of going at a hundred ideas a minute. Other times he was when he was in a bad mood, he was the, he was terrible to work with because you didn't know when he was going to sort of explode at some poor hapless civil servant or, or write some furious email that would get you into trouble. So no, he was he was definitely the most intriguing person I've ever worked with, um, if not always the most the most fun. I mean, I think. You know, there's this fundamental contradiction in, in, in his behavior and the way he sees the world. On one hand, he's got this sort of love of science and physicists and systems and Feynman and the Apollo project. and He's sort of always banging on about you know, wanting these evidence-based, rational, sort of well-forecasted systems in place. Um, and on the other hand, he's sort of a revolutionary who admires Bismarck and Lenin and thinks the ends justify the means and there's no value in process. And the, and the sort of way you do things is blow everything up.
0: Uh, sam he 's clearly decided at the moment to blow everything up, but of the of the recipes for reform that he did have when he was in that that frame of mind, if you like, which ones do you think he 's right about what, what would you change in government
2: well, I, I thought the most compelling part of the of, of the testimony for me was about those sort of early days of the of the pandemic and the sort of the, the fact that everyone in the system hung on to a bunch of obviously false assumptions way too long. Uh, assumptions that the British people wouldn't accept lockdown when actually polling was showing that the public were quite keen on lockdown, assumptions that vaccines would take 18 months when actually they took less time than that, you know, assumptions that were clearly wrong about the rate of the, uh, uh, the sort of exponential rate of the illness and whether the NHS was going to get overwhelmed if we didn't lock down. And why were these assumptions held so long when you could see on the outside, you know, Lombardy was in, was in the state it was in on television. And I think that he's right to say that there's, they developed a sort of bunker mentality and didn't listen to outside voices and didn't bring outside voices in. And that when Cummings did bring some outside voices in, they were very quick to say, you know, your numbers are just obviously wrong, and this isn't going to work, and you have to go to to a different plan. and I think there's a really interesting question, and I've seen it happen elsewhere as to why the civil service is so repeatedly and sage you know more, more broadly in this case, are so quick to go into this bunker mentality and defend their set of assumptions rather than go out and sort of seek a wider range of views and why there's sort of this hostility to uh, outsider opinion. Uh, and for me, that's kind of an area where I agree the kind of long term reform is a 10 year project and very complex and difficult. But it feels like there there are things you could do and ways uh, you could apply in terms of uh, practice around crises and other big decisions where you, as a matter of course, get more outside expertise and, and more outside thought into the system to challenge uh, assumptions.
0: Well, that's a tantalising And it's one that we're, go- we're going to have to explore I, in other podcasts. And it's obviously central to IFG work. But with this one, sadly, we're going to have to wrap up at this point. Uh, much, much more to say on all of this, of course. My huge thanks with that to Jill Rutter, Alex Thomas, and especially to Sam Friedman. And if you enjoy this podcast, then do head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. We've got a rather timely event exploring how to hold a successful COVID inquiry. It's going to be heading your way. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Do leave us a review as well. I can't promise we'll be stretching to any seven-hour specials anytime soon, though. Remember to check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. We've got a new report out this week entitled Taking Back Control of State Aid, with thanks to Dominic Cummings for use of his favourite slogan, And that looks at how the government can make a success of its post-Brexit freedoms. For now, however, the alliance that got Brexit done, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, has fallen apart, and spectacularly so. But the case for reform of government does emerge intact from the wreckage. Like Dominic Cummings, we'll be talking about this again soon. Have a good weekend.